This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. My grandmother, Velma Louise Carey, she was my favorite person in the world. She was an unbelievable human being. And she always taught me that my life was not my own and that it was my job to take care of others, in particular people in our community. Welcome, everybody. Today I have with me Tracy Mears, the Walton Hale Hamilton professor and a founding director of the Justice Collaboratory. Tracy, thank you for being here. Happy to do it. So it's really nice to have you here, and mostly we're going to talk about your work, but I want to talk a little bit about how it all began. So why law? Why law? That's an interesting question that um, probably my college roommates would also want to know the answer to because it wasn't the original plan. Um, I was an engineer, undergrad, um, and I decided to be an engineer after thinking that being a doctor probably wasn't the best path for someone like me. Um, I was a 16-year-old misanthrope. Um, You're still a misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, having children mellows you out a bit, I think. Anyway, um, I think it was probably me trying to seek a path to doing good in the world, honestly. And um, once it became clear that going to medical school after getting the engineering degree still wasn't going to be the best path, being a lawyer seemed to be a good option. Was it a hard transition to go from engineering, and which appeals to all your Spock-like characteristics, uh, into law? No. Um, I think that was a developmental um, milestone, actually, for me. I was a kid who did well in school um, for, you know, 15 years without really trying. And um, law school was so challenging, and I also really loved it. So you go from solving equations every day um, and thinking three-dimensionally to reading, reading, and more reading, and writing, which I hadn't really done much of for four years in college. And it was fascinating. The work was fascinating. The people around me were fascinating. I went from the University of Illinois to the University of Chicago, which seemed very rarefied to the uh, country corn-fed kid. Um, and it was a great time. I remember writing a letter to my mother when I was in law school. Back in the days when you wrote letters because you wanted to save money, because long-distance phone calls cost money. And it's a letter she still has um, where the last three sentences of the letter were, I love it, I love it, I love it, with exclamation points. Cheesy, but true. When you went to law school, it, it, University of Chicago was in its heyday, I think, the, the law school, um, where you were both a student and then a faculty member. When you arrived, did you have an inkling that you were going to be an academic? No. It's funny to say that University of Chicago was in its heyday. I mean, you know, I'm sure people there would say, well, it's had many heydays, but it's true. I mean, I was there when Richard Posner was still on the faculty and um, Jeff Stone, who later became provost, was the dean. And you could go through the list of 
illustrious faculty then and um, people who, some of whom became um, our colleagues here um, at Yale were junior colleagues. Elena Kagan was on the faculty at that time. Um, I had no idea that I was going to be a law professor. My thought was that I would integrate engineering with law and be a patent lawyer. Uh, that seemed like something fun. And uh, one of my professors, actually it was Jeff Stone, um, asked me if I thought seriously about being an academic my second year in law school. And he planted the seed and here we are. You became a member of that faculty right after you graduated from law school. What was it like to teach people who were essentially your peers? Petrifying. Um, confusing. Um, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I think being, you know, I was the only person of color on the faculty at that time and one of few women on the faculty. I was also 25 years old. And, um, you know, 25 years later, <laughs> I'm still a woman and I am still a person of color. I am no longer 25 years old. And I think that's the hardest thing. Um, that was the hardest thing about um, teaching at the University of Chicago at that time. So you are one of the leading theorists of criminal justice work in the country. Was that in your heart when you were in law school? When I was in law school, I would say no. Um, I was just hungry, intellectually hungry in law school. Um, I basically took the courses that interested me. And it's still a piece of wisdom I try to pass on to students today. I don't know how many of them are able to follow it, given um, the seeming pressure that students face, see, you know, put on themselves for planning their careers at however old they are. Um, in law school now, I'm, un I'm unsure. Um, you know, the idea that, well, you have to take this class and this class and this class. I gave up taking tax, which is one of the classes that people think you ought to take, in order to take Intellectual Origins of the Constitution with Stephen Holmes, because I knew I would never have an opportunity to take a class like that again. And, you know, I figured I could learn tax if I needed it, whatever that means. <laughs> Um, so that was my path. And when I started teaching, um, I wasn't especially interested in criminal law, really. I, uh, my first pieces were on professional responsibility and how to think about incentives for prosecutors. So I suppose related a bit, um, to the criminal justice system, but not what I'm doing now, um, that was, again, something I fell into um, out of conversations with another mentor, William Julius Wilson, who was teaching at Chicago at the time. I, I took election law on a whim and took it instead of evidence over the objection of everyone who thought I should learn evidence for the bar. So, I, Did you ever I, take evidence? Nope. Uh, well, you learned it for the bar. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> right. So if we can fast forward a little bit to the kind of work you do, if you had to describe the buckets of your scholarship to someone who was outside the field, what would you say? So it's interesting. I, you know, we were just speaking of uh, William Julius Wilson, Bill Wilson, who recently retired from Harvard. 
Um, it was my interaction with him that um, led to a deep interest in a particular school of sociology, how to understand the structure of neighborhoods. And this was during the mid-90s when a violent crime was extremely high um, throughout the country, but especially in the Chicago. And I became interested in trying to understand the dynamics of that and how one might think about um, what law would have to say about that in a context in which much of the legal analysis about crime was individually based and also based in a particular theory of law and economics. So I would say the first um, sort of tranche of my work was about thinking about how one could think about how legal policy could influence the choices of the community, in quotes, people who were neither um, victims of crime uh, in the first instance, nor people who were committing those crimes, but still had an influence on um, crime in, in place. And then the second sort of, you know, the evolution of that was to look at what social psychology had to say. So if the first area of the of research was about what do community dynamics look like, look like. The second iteration was to take the individuals within those contexts and th think about how they understood the influence of law and legal authorities in their lives. And then um, the third area that I've been thinking about lately has a more political science bent which is to say, let's bring those two areas together and think about how people within space interacting with legal authorities understand themselves as citizens. So let's let's uh, fast forward a little bit. We were, we arrived at Planet Yale together, <laughs> both of us pregnant <laughs> with our yeah. sons. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering what you thought when you arrived here. I felt like coming from Harvard, it was a really different place. I think it has more continuities with Chicago than it does with Harvard. So I'm curious how you found it. Uh, um, I think for me, after being at Chicago, it's hard to be at a place that doesn't offer the basics of what I think um, Chicago stands for, which is a deep commitment to the life of the mind um, a commitment to understanding what one's colleagues are working on, um, a commitment to trying to work on those two ideas, those two projects together um, as a faculty. Um, and I saw all of those things here, so it felt pretty comfortable for me. It was, you know, the water was the right temperature. <laughs> um, it was just a much bigger pool, um, which is a funny metaphor because I'm not a particularly strong swimmer. <laughs> so why I would care about a big pool, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, a little less communal than Chicago. That was odd for me. A lot of the conversations were one-on-one -on -one and I'm a person who likes to make lots of connections, um, horizontal connections rather than the vertical connections that I have with people. Um, but it was it was fascinating. So that's the first thing. Notice I'm focusing on the faculty. The thing that's the most notable about this place is the students. Amen. Um, they are a different collection of humans. Now I'm care I'm I'm trying to be careful when I say that because 
I am sure uh, that our students aren't fundamentally different from Chicago students or Harvard students. Um, so I'm not trying to make that argument as much as I'm trying to say that they are extraordinary people and like many other people are extraordinary, but this place allows people to be extraordinary um, and that sort of alchemy is special. Yeah, I, I felt exactly the same way that the students were engaged in the life of the mind and in the projects uh, in front of the faculty in a fashion that I just never imagined. Yeah. I, I lost control of my seminar the first two weeks, which I never did because I was worried about them talking at it. And also, they discovered they were talking too much. Yeah, right. So um, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about the fact that even as you embody these scholarly values, you are also in the world a lot. And the stereotype, of course, is that there's a giant divide between practice and theory, but you've done work for the Obama administration uh, in this area. You founded the Justice Collaboratory. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where your ideas have led you into the world and what you've been doing there. Yeah. Um, right. So I've done work at the national level. I do work with municipalities. Um, I do work for and with um, state governments all about the general project of criminal justice reform, although in the last five or six years, the primary focus has been on thinking about policing. You embody the values of a scholar in a clear way, but you also do a, a lot of work in the world. And the practice theory divide suggests that you shouldn't be doing both of those things. And I wonder how you manage it. And also if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of work you're doing right now. Yeah, you know, the, the practice theory divide in the area of law is a notion that is illegible to me, honestly. Um, if you are a lawyer, I think the questions that motivate you, the basic questions are ones that should matter in the world. I, it's hard for me to imagine how they don't matter in the world. Um, in that sense, I'm probably betraying my initial training as an engineer, right? And engineers apply science that, you know, I suppose at some level physicists and material science um, researchers and so on develop and they do it for a reason. Now, you know, that might suggest then that, um, you know, that what a practitioner is doing is merely just applying what someone else has developed. But there needs to be some sort of basic science behind those questions, like understanding um, what citizenship means. Certainly political scientists can answer that question and, and maybe certain kinds of um, philosophers. But lawyers have a deep abiding interest in that question, right? Um, and it and I think they care about it um, because we care about what happens in the world, right? Um, so I would say where my work has taken me, if you think about the work I've done on violence reduction and understanding how people relate to one of the key legal authorities in their lives, the police, and then understanding how that relates to how people understand themselves as citizens, 
if you think about those three things and you think about the work I did on the president's task force on 21st century policing, it all makes sense. And the 59 recommendations that we came up with for President Obama to think about how to improve trust in legal authorities like police officers while maintaining, um, you know, uh, while keeping people safe in their communities. It's an intensely practical question, but it's also an importantly theoretical and aspirational one that's consistent with the work I've been doing for the last 20 years and other people who have been working with me. If I think about the most Mears-like thing at the law school, I think it is a justice collaboratory. I know you have a really punchy shorthand for it, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it does, because I see it as a scholarly institution, an institution with real-world impact, and also a connective device inside the university, and so it embodies everything that you are. I'm just curious how you think about it. Yeah, the Justice Collaboratory has been um, one of <laughs> developing it and working with Tom Tyler, who is uh, my co-founder and um, dearly beloved colleague. Tom has developed one, you know, is is the godfather of one of the bedrock theories um, on which the Justice Collaboratory sits, which is um, procedural justice, which is a kind of poorly named, it's a poor name for the theory, but it's about how we think, uh, what are the four things that are important in thinking about how um, people relate to legal authorities, what they care about. Um, and I can talk about it if you want to, but I want to skip ahead. And to say that through our work at the collaboratory, we've been able to push forward the basic science of that idea, right? So to be constantly at the forefront of just what it is it, you know, what are the things that people actually care about in thinking about um, the fairness of legal authorities, which is a critically important question always, but certainly today, um, and also developing tools, applications, programs to apply those ideas in the real world by working with, for example, the mayor's office of criminal justice in, um, in New York or working with the corrections office of the state of Connecticut or working with um, then Attorney General Kamala Harris in the state of California or working with President Barack Obama um, for the United States Department of Justice. Um, our tagline is serious science, serious impact, and we mean it. What that means is we won't do research that's just a project evaluation, a program evaluation. That work is valuable, and you know there are other entities out there that can do that. We also don't uh, um, devote ourselves to technical assistance, you know, just helping different governmental entities doing this work which is also valuable and someone needs to do it. We won't do it unless it actually pushes the science forward. And so it's really interesting position to be in to do both of those things at one time. It's incredibly rare um, and we've been very lucky. And part of the reason why we can do it is because um, the Justice Collaboratory members include people who are leaders, um, scientists who are leaders in their field. Um, one of the Justice Collaboratory members is Jennifer Richeson, who's a social psychologist um, um, who does work on political psychology and race. I'm a MacArthur Genius Award winner. One of our 
um, Justice Collaboratory members is B.J. Casey, who developed much of the neuroscience cited by Brian Stevenson in his uh, brief before the Supreme Court. Another one of our collaboratory members, historian Elizabeth Hinton, who um, wrote an award-winning book looking at the relationship between um, poverty programs and the criminal justice system today and as a key architect of thinking about strategies of reconciliation among communities and state authorities. Another psychologist, Philip Goff, who has received, I think, almost, well, well over $10 million from the recent TED audacious um, competition to do his important work on um, equity and policing. So we have a diversity of disciplinary representation within Yale, but also outside Yale um, as a scholarly endeavor, as well as being able to do the work on the ground outside Yale. So it's, it's a pretty heady mix. Can you talk a little bit in a more granular way about the work that you do with uh, police chiefs across the country. I mean, every time I talk to you, you're always on the road going to see someone in New York, someone in Chicago, and so on. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about what are you doing day to day with those forces and, and what have you learned from that work? Well, I think a lot of that goes back to um, the work we did on the president's task force. So um, we developed, so we, I should be very clear what I'm talking about right now, I uh, was one of two scholars on um, the president's task force on 21st century policing. There were police chiefs. There were um, activists. Um, it was a, an incredibly um, diverse group of people. And Brian Stevenson, who's in his own category. Um, so we developed 59 recommendations. The first pillar of those recommendations rested on research that Tom and I have done on procedural justice and legitimacy and improving trust in authorities. Um, so that's the JC connection. Um, after those recommendations were developed, the COPS office then um, adopted an implementation guide the kinds of things that agencies and departments should be doing in order to push forward these 59 recommendations. So some of the work that um, I do has to do with developing um, training um, for policing agencies related to those recommendations. There was a very large a national initiative for building trust and justice in communities sponsored by the Department of Justice in the last administration. Um, Tom and I, through the Justice Collaboratories, were principal investigators on that, along with the Center for Policing Equity and the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay. So we mounted a very large and relatively complex strategy of police training, reconciliation activities, and assessment tools um, for police departments in six cities across the country. So s some of the work was related to that. And then those two things come together to, to, to spawn other projects um, where people understand that it is really difficult to achieve violence reduction apart from reform. That's sort of one of the central ideas 
um, that we have at, at the collaboratory that because we know when you enhance um, perceptions of fairness and enhance legitimacy um, in communities, people are more likely to obey the law. They're more likely to engage with authorities, cooperate with them in this general project of promoting safety and then other projects. And so some of the work I do is about advising uh, governments in, in that context. I also um, serve on the monitoring team of the Baltimore Police Department. Um, and that's been incredibly interesting work. That's incredibly ground granular. So helping them to write policies, um, specific policies for the police department, think about ways in which to assess their ability to um, follow those policies um, and ensure that members don't um, violate the policies and therefore constitutional law, things like that. If you can name one uh, piece of scholarship and one piece of reform work that make you proudest, the second one being in the spirit of your grandmother who believed in service, uh, what would those be? Well, the service one is obvious. Um, you know, the piece of service is serving on the president's task force. Um, that was life-changing. Uh, Life-changing in so many different ways. You know, we traveled around the country listening to people talk about the ways in which um, they had been harmed by police, what their aspirations were for um, what that particular relationship should look like. We talked to police members who were deeply disappointed in what they were had been expected by their superiors to do. You know, we talked to, um, um, you know, uh, municipal leaders who were struggling to figure out, you know, how to come up with a governance strategy to, you know, to help people in their communities. Um, and, you know, understanding the potential, again, for different theories, and in particular the theory that I had been studying for the last 10 years to have a really deep impact on people's lives in terms of their flourishing was really humbling. Um, understanding the potential to simply save people's lives um, was incredibly humbling and also understanding that saving people's lives by reducing the number of people who would be killed or harmed by police while important um, and more humane was not the ultimate goal, wasn't a citizenship project, that, that a citizenship project is a fundamentally different, grander thing. Um, and if I learned anything from my grandmother, it sh would be that I should be aiming for that grander thing. You do this incredible academic and reform work. I will also just say that I see you every day doing the invisible work of citizenship at this university. And now as dean, I know even in a much more broad gauge way about the ways in which you are the glue that sticks parts of this academic community, particularly for the scholars of color at the university together. Uh, and it's a lot of work. It's time that's unrewarded, often unnoticed by most people. And I wonder, uh, how do you think about that work? I have to live. 
I have to have a life. Um, and, you know, we were talking about my, my grandmother earlier. Um, we should say a little bit more about what that means. My grandmother, Velma Louise Carey, she passed um, well over 10 years ago now, right about the time that I moved to Yale. She was my favorite person in the world. She was an unbelievable human being. Um, she became director of human resources at Sangamon State University in Springfield, Illinois, and had only a high school degree. And she was completely self-taught in every way. Um, a civil rights activist and a pillar of her community. And that sounds like it would be or could be a burden. Um, and sometimes it is, but she always carried that task out um, herself with joy. I learned that from her, like, um, you know, making people happy makes it easier for all of us to do the work. Thank you for making things different, Tracy. Thank you for letting me do that, Heather. <laughs> <laughs>